Let's open the word this morning as we continue our study of Matthew, this this wonderful gospel that uh, that just continues to reveal to us so many wonderful truths that grip our hearts. We have been looking at our Lord's Sermon on the Mount where Jesus describes kingdom citizens, not just the average churchgoer type of folks that we're so used to, but true kingdom citizens. And he has given us a model of prayer, this amazing forerunner of divine mercy, this inconceivable privilege that we have to enter into the very throne room of God. And as you may recall, Jesus is giving us a model here, not a prayer. And it is a model that is a startling contrast to the self-serving, ritualistic, mechanical, repetitious, ostentatious prayers of the hypocrites that Jesus continues to expose. And so here the Holy Spirit reveals to us the proper components, if you will, that are pleasing to our Heavenly Father when we pray. And I might encourage you to meditate greatly upon these inspired truths. And friends, as you do so, as as these truths really grip your heart, I am quite certain that it will revolutionize and transform your prayer life. By way of review, we've seen that this prayer in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, is divided into two sections. The first section we've already addressed in great detail. It addresses God and his glory. Notice he says, pray that in this way, verse nine, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so that section addresses God's glory. This is where our hearts should begin when we come before the Lord in prayer. There, there are three petitions, one regarding his name, where we begin by addressing our father, which reminds us of our spiritual origin, that we are the adopted sons of the father. And even as my children bear resemblances of me as their father, both good and bad, we bear resemblances of our father. And when we do, we only bear good resemblances because he has no bad characteristics. But this is what this means to pray beginning with our father and also to hallow his name as we've studied within his name. We see the sum of all of his great attributes. And so to hollow a name means to acknowledge his his its, its supreme holiness and glorify his utter perfection and love and righteousness and so on. And then we pray that his kingdom would come. And certainly the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom in which he reigns in the hearts of those whom he has chosen by his grace uh, a reign that will ultimately be experienced not just spiritually, but physically by his subjects when we see him face to face and he reigns upon this earth during the millennial age. And then we pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, we pray, Lord, may our wills be your will. May we have the mind of Christ. May we love what you love and hate what you hate. And we're praying, Lord, that your will will prevail upon 
the entire earth as it does in heaven. And certainly we know the way it prevails in heaven. The way his will is done in heaven is it's done without hesitation. It's done without question. It's done willingly and joyfully and fervently and completely. It's done perfectly. It's done constantly. Lord, this is what we're praying, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we've seen thus far that the divine model strikes a death blow to the self-will and proud demands concealed in clever religious formulas that we often hear. Those formulas designed to somehow obligate God to do something for our will to perform some personal miracle or whatever. So here we have, dear friends, the the components of heart righteousness, the components of proper prayer, beginning with three petitions for God and his glory. And now we move to three petitions for our personal needs. So the will of the father must precede our wills, even as our Lord asked the father to spare him of the cup of divine wrath that was soon to be poured out upon him on the cross. He said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So today we look at section two that addresses man's needs, petitions regarding three things, daily bread, forgiveness and protection from temptation. In other words, we're going to see over the next few weeks that we pray for three things. First, our dependence upon God, and that's what we'll look at today. And then for our debts to God and our defense by God. But this morning we want to look at this next section very closely regarding our dependence on God. Notice verse 11. We read, give us this day our daily bread. Now, folks, we've heard that a thousand times. We maybe even have said it a thousand times. But do we really grasp its meaning? I'm struck again with the simplicity and yet the profundity of this request. Once again, in an economy of words, the Lord reveals the proper attitude of heart righteousness. And by contrast, exposes the selfishness and arrogance that so typically fuel our prayers. You know, many times this prayer would be said more with this kind of an attitude. Not so much would we say a humble request of give us this day, but we would have more of a whiny kind of complaining request, that of a spoiled child that would basically say, where is the food that I deserve and I demand? Rather than a confident request, acknowledging the source of our daily sustenance coming from the father. Instead, we often approach him, assuming that somehow we are our own supplier. Rather than having a satisfied petition for a daily portion, we want our barns to be overflowing. We want to have the feeling of security for the future. Just in case God doesn't come through. And rather than a petition that is content with the mere basics of bread, we demand the luxuries of life. But Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Now, there are three elements 
of this prayer that really demonstrate our dependence upon God. And I want to reveal those to you today. First of all, what we notice is this is a humble request, a humble request. You see, by addressing God, the father, we acknowledge him alone as our sole provider, the source of all that we have. And if we were to look in Genesis one, for example, in verse twenty nine, we see his provision for his creation set into motion in the garden when he blessed Adam and Eve, saying, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth. And every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And so our faithful heavenly father has provided for us all that we need in his wonderful creation. But not only do we humbly acknowledge him as the sole source of our provisions, but also we acknowledge our dependency upon his mercy in providing it. Now, think about this, even as we must first approach our Savior, acknowledging our spiritual bankruptcy, begging for undeserved mercy and grace. So, too, we stand before our heavenly father in prayer, acknowledging our utter dependency upon his kind provision. Often I think of that passage in James chapter one and verse 17 where we read every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow and the exercise of his will. Will he he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. In other words, what that text is saying is that everything we have has been given to us by The father of lights, which, by the way, was an ancient Jewish expression for the creator God, the God who made the sun and the moon and the stars. But unlike the celestial bodies that constantly shift and and vary in their intensity of light as they journey in their orbit, the text says there is no variation in the father of lights. But it says in the exercise of his will, will he bring us forth by the word of truth? That divine act of regeneration where he brings us forth spiritually. And then it says we are the first fruits among his creatures. In other words, he loves us so much and cares for us so much that we are the first evidence of a new creation that will someday come in the new heaven and the new earth. We, we are a sample, a, a foretaste of a future glory, of a new life of which we now have a foretaste to enjoy as we live in sweet fellowship with our father as his dear children. Now, friends, may I ask you when you come and you pray before the Lord, as you, for example, sit down at your table and you thank the Lord for your food. Do these startling realities undergird your prayers? Do they stir your soul to humility Do they somehow cause your eyes at times to even fill with tears of of inexpressible joy? How often we commit the sin of ingratitude and the sin of indifference, failing to acknowledge him as our sole provider. You know, in our country of abundance, sometimes it's hard for us to think about all that the Lord has given us. We, 
We have far more than we need here, right? We, I think we all would agree with that. And in some ways we rejoice in that because the Lord has given to us so lavishly. But when you think about it, you know, we can, we can have a hunger pain and not even think that the Lord will provide our food for us. Instead, we think, well, you know, Wendy's will do that or McDonald's or whatever. And we've got so much. I mean, just think about it. We can take our automobile and we can pull up to a place and we can order something and they will ask us even if we want it to be biggie sized, which I call piggy sized and we can get it biggie sized and we can eat it within a few seconds right there in the comfort of our car. And friends, it is so easy, therefore, to become ungrateful and to even become indifferent towards God's provision for us. And then when we don't get what we want, we begin to think our father is indifferent to our needs. And you say, oh, I, I, I would never say that. Oh, but you do, dear friend, when you complain, when you whine, when you don't get what you want. Beloved, never forget that our heavenly father is intimately concerned with our daily physical needs as any good father would be. You know, I'm amazed when I think about it. The entire universe is under his control. All of the ecological systems are under his control. All of the seasons, the climates, the hydrological cycle of, of evaporation and rain. Child of God, please hear this. Never lose the wonder of of the sovereign supervision of the Lord over all of his creation. Without that, we would die because just think about it. If the sun were just a little bit closer, we would fry. If it was just a little bit further away, we would freeze. But indeed, he controls all of the planets with with his infinite power so that they orbit perfectly in perfect precision in perfect symmetry. You know, it's a staggering thought. And I remind you of this because, again, I want you to understand the humility that should be in our hearts when we come before the Lord and we ask him for something. In Colossians 1:17, we're told that in him all things hold together. You realize that every atom, which, by the way, is the smallest component of any element, all, every atom has a nucleus. And in that nucleus, there are protons and neutrons that that work together and they are bound together by electrons and they have an, an electrical attraction that scientists cannot explain. They don't understand how that these small elements stay together and keep from breaking apart. Well, we can explain it only because of Scripture, because in him all things hold together. And in Hebrews 1, 3, we're told that he upholds all things by the word of his power. You see, friends, every God honoring supplication, every God honoring prayer must be anchored in, in this bedrock of truth that all that exists, all that we have, everything that that we see every seed, every morsel of fruit, every drop of rain, 
every drop of blood in our veins, every breath that we breathe, all of those things come from our heavenly father. So this is the kind of humility that needs to be in our prayer. And this is what the Lord is teaching us. Uh, that our father is the sole source of all that we have. And so not only is this a humble prayer, but it is secondly a confident prayer. Now, while we come in humility, acknowledging like beggars our utter dependence upon our father's gracious provision, may I say that we do not stand on the outside walls of our father begging for scraps here. All right. Dear friends, he is Abba Father, right? He, he, he is our daddy. He, there, there's such an endearing concept here. So we dine at his table. He is the one who even spreads a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And so our Heavenly Father provides for us lavishly. And he always gives us what we need just when we need it. And many times well before his provisions are gracious. Therefore, we can confidently say to our father, give us. Knowing that our father loves to give and we can say that with confidence. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And in verse 8 of Psalm 37, he says, do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. Evil doers, evil doers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. And then in verse 11, he says, the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. So here again, God is committed to meeting our needs, but only if we trust him. And we cultivate faithfulness. Have you ever thought of why America is so blessed? Is it because we have better natural resources? Maybe because we have better scientific knowledge. Perhaps it's superior technology. Or maybe it's our political or economic or social Systems that we have in place. Maybe it's because our people work harder than everybody else in the world. You think those are the reasons that so you're all laughing? Of course not. Beloved, the reason why America has been blessed the way she has is because so many of God's children live here. Because the Heavenly Father has taken care of us bountifully. And even those that don't know Christ are unwitting recipients of divine grace as it spills over onto them. We were once a country that understood the truth of God and his words, a country founded upon the principle of God's word, even though now we're straying rapidly from it. But if you look at all of the countries where the children are starving, where there are hideous famines and disease, where there is poverty, where there is human atrocities and constant conflict and war, the one thread of commonality that you will see is that those people do not worship the true and the living God. They worship the father of lies. They've been deceived. We see this in the utter, utter poverty of the Muslim nations. 
and other idolatrous, Christ-hating nations, despite staggering resources that they have. We see it in the ongoing famine in India. Tremendous natural resources, but an utter hatred of Christianity. And there they have unimaginable starvation and poverty and no value of human life. Let me give you an example of this. If you look at Hinduism, first of all, you will see that it is a pagan religion that is undeniably rooted in ancient Babylonian cultism. We read that even back in Genesis with Nimrod and Samaramis and, and Satan when they tried to build the Tower of Babel and all of those things. That was Satan's first attempt to establish an earthly kingdom. And of course, his second attempt will be with the renewed Babylon. And I believe we're seeing that even now that will finally come to fruition during the tribulation time with the counterfeit trinity of Satan and Antichrist and the false prophet. And it's interesting that Hinduism is rapidly growing in the West, especially in Hollywood with all of the transcendentalism and and those types of things. You'll see it, by the way, elements of it in the holistic health movement and alternative medicines and things like therapeutic touch and meditation. It's all through the concepts of the modern feminist movement. There are irrefutable parallels in Hinduism with ancient Gnosticism rooted in Greek dualism. If you remember your your New Testament history that Paul had to fight in the New Testament. You'll see these concepts sprinkled all through the apostate systems of Mormonism and Freemasonry, the, the Shriner movement. You'll see it in Eastern religions of Scientology, New Age, Zen, Buddhism, Shintoism, Zoroastrianism, Confucianism, Taoism, Baha'i, Wicca. And the more I study it, as others do, you even see now strains of these types of things in certain forms of Pentecostalism and the fringes of the charismatic movement. If you really want to see it and see how subtle it is, turn on Oprah Winfrey and you will see unwitting fools by the thousands being systematically indoctrinated into these new forms of, quote, spirituality, which are really nothing more than doctrines of demons, as we read in the New Testament. But in the Hindu belief, man is merely an incarnated soul on his way to moksha, which is the final emancipation. Remember, like in old ancient Gnosticism, they had this battle, battle between, between matter and the spirit, and anything that was of the body was bad, and anything that was of the spirit was good. That's why they couldn't grasp this idea of God becoming flesh and so on. But during this trip with the Hindus, they believe that you will go through countless cycles of reincarnation, both human and animal. And if you have good deeds, you're going to go to a higher form of being. And if you have bad deeds in your life, you'll go to you'll regress down to lower forms. And so things such as poverty and disease and starvation are therefore seen as divine punishments and they require penance. And to them, proper penance is rewarded by being born again into a higher form of life. And by the way, they resent anyone's help in any attempt to help them in any way, certainly evangelism, because that would interfere with their karma, as they call it, and ultimately cause spiritual harm to them. 
Again, tragic lives inspired by Satan and his minions. Now, animals are considered to be incarnations, either of men or of deities. And I might say as a footnote, having studied this at great length, this fuels the environmental groups that you see fighting for so many things in our country today. All of the tree huggers and bunny huggers and those types of things that we talk about. This also fuels the anti-hunting movement and the animal rights movement and is strongly behind the anti-gun lobby. The Greenpeace, Sierra Club, the Save the Whales, Kill the Babies people. Well, because of these lies, these myths in India, it's estimated that over 300 million cows are living in Hinduism considered reincarnated people or deities. And of course, this adds to their food problem because these cows, they estimate, consume about 20 percent of India's food supply. You see how it begins to work when you don't acknowledge the heavenly father. And they also won't kill rats or mice for the same type of reason. And they estimate that they eat another 15 percent of India's food supply. Tragic. By the way, you can see similar kinds of pagan deceptions that shackle the lives of millions of people in, in many other countries around the world. How sad, because if they were to serve the true and the living God, they could lay hold of the of the marvelous promises that we read about later in Matthew six, where the Lord says, I, I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink nor for your bodies as to what you shall put on. It's not life more than food and the body than clothing. The Lord says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? In verse 31, he says, do not be anxious then, saying, oh, what shall I eat? Or what shall we drink? Or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things, the Gentiles, in other words, the pagans eagerly seek. But your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But seek first what? His kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to, to you. So there's the wonderful promise, beloved, that we have so that we when we come before the throne of grace and humility, we can also come before him with great confidence that as we seek his kingdom, and as a loving Heavenly Father, He will give to us all that we need, though perhaps not all that we want. So our prayers should be humble and they should be confident. But thirdly, they should be contented. Content with two things. Notice this. We should be content with the object and the amount. That is the quality and the quantity of the Lord's provision. Well, what's the object that the Lord gives us? Well, it's the perfect object. It's bread considered to be the perfect food. There are people that have lived long, long lives on bread and water, right? Bread, of course, is symbolic throughout the scripture and other places, frankly, of all of our physical needs. Sounds like Fort Campbell is active today. 
And here, bread would be symbolic, not only of just what we need to eat, but all of the physical needs that we would have to sustain us. But again, not always do we get what we want. So in effect, what this text is saying is, Father, I am content with the very basics that you alone provide to sustain me physically. So that's the object, but also we should be content with the amount and only notice that it's daily. It is not weekly. It is not monthly. It's not even yearly. By the way, the grammar in the original language emphasizes this very fact by placing our daily bread in the front. It, it literally could be translated, our daily bread, give us this day. Or, or to say it even differently, it's saying, give us today the portion that is needed to sustain us for any one day. And we will trust you for the next. That's the concept here. Too often, dear friends, our hearts are filled with discontent with God's provision. It's so easy, especially in our country, to want more and more. That's what fuels American advertising. You could never be satisfied with the car that you had last year. You've got to have the new model. And the only thing different in the new model is that they just barely changed the lights a little bit or whatever. You know how it works. And we end up having this insatiable appetite for the luxuries of life. We're not satisfied with the daily portion. We want enough to last us for the rest of our lives. We want to be able to go out into our barns and into our storage buildings that we now have to rent so that we can see all of our stuff and look at our big bank accounts and make sure that we've got plenty to get us through to the rest of our life. And I'm not saying there isn't a place to prepare for the future. Certainly there is. And that is a biblical concept. But when it becomes your God, when it becomes an idol of your heart, it is sin. And the Lord wants us to keep that in mind, even as we pray for the daily portion that he has promised to provide. Last week, as you know, I had the privilege of doing a conference up in Chicago for about 60 men. And there were um, there were two pastors. One of them was there and the other one I met the next day that were from Kenya, which is another whole long story as we see God continue to weave together a tapestry for what may happen between this church and our brothers and sisters in Christ in Africa. But. One of the pastors from Kenya, from Nairobi, was there working on his Ph.D. in church history at Trinity Seminary. And he was so excited about the things that the Lord gave me to give to them and invited me to come to speak to their church in Kenya, in Nairobi. He wanted me to meet his fellow pastor, who was the senior pastor, which I did the next day. And they have uh, invited me to come to speak there, by the way. There will be three services I'll be preaching at. And they said there's a little over 6,000 people in each service. They said you will be exhausted by the end of the day. But between the people that will be there and the people on television and uh, from the, that watch the television and hear the radio, you'll be able to preach the gospel to over a million people. So that will be an interesting, interesting opportunity. But I was really struck with these dear brothers as I watched them. The one thing that you'll notice about them is they are so happy. They've got this huge smile. And 
I remember in talking with them, I was asking them about their people and all. And I, I, I said, um, uh, how would you describe the people in your church? And and the, the one dear pastor's name is Jonathan. He's this big toothy smile. He smiled and he said, they are all very happy. And I thought. That's an interesting thing. And I, I said, well, that's great. And 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 as I was talking with him, I, I said, I said, why are they so happy? And it was fascinating what he said. I I kind of knew, I mean, you know, because they love Christ and all these wonderful things. But um, he said to me, because they have so little. They're happy because they have so little. And he went on to basically say that all we have are the basics and all we can ever get are just the basics. And we know that. And so people aren't wrapped up. They're not concerned. They aren't frantic about getting more. They spend their time loving each other and serving the Lord. And they're content with the basics. And that's why they're so happy. That a fascinating thought. And it really gripped my heart, even as I was thinking of this text. I talked with another friend the other day that grew up very poor, but he said to me, and I quote, we weren't poor. We just didn't have any money. Not a great thought. We weren't poor. We just didn't have any money. And he went on to talk about in his own Tennessee way how they were as happy as a hog and slop. We understand that. But friends, not so in our country. The more we get, it seems like the more we want, right? I mean, you stop and think about it, and I'm the world's worst at this. Um, you know, I think about, okay, you, you, you need a new pickup. Well, I, I don't want one of those where I have to roll down the window by hand. I want one with a little button that rolls them all down. And I don't want to have to reach over and unlock the locks. I want one where you can hit the button and unlock the locks, you know. And I, and I don't want the cloth seats. I, I want that leather, you know. And, and, and I don't want um, to just use a map. I mean, I want to buy one of those screens that's in there that that has some kind of a satellite global positioning monitor so that I you see how it goes. And I mean, on and on. We want to we, we want more and more. And you know what? The enemy always provides for us more and more. And it becomes something that becomes idolatrous. I think of how much money I heard the other day it costs for a man to become a deer hunter. And the estimate was like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars because it went through this whole thing of how uh, I mean, certainly you have to um, have your your guns and your bows and your knives and those things. But you've got to have your scent block camel camouflage clothes. You've got to have your binoculars and, of course, your Gore-Tex boots and rain gear. You've got to have a tree stand. And you also need a four wheeler, you know, to carry that stuff in and out. And you've got to have a trailer to put the four wheeler on. And certainly you need a good pickup, a four wheel drive to get in and out of there. And, and it's certainly going to help to have a large shed to keep all that in. And here we go. And, and, and you know, and ladies, don't you laugh too much. You know, we could get off on uh, on makeup and manicures and all those things, too. Right. And and uh, all the things that people do in our country, they they pay. Nobody's content with anything. I mean, they're not even content with how they look. I mean, people paying all this money to get things, I don't know, tucked and sucked and augmented and all kinds of things they do with with uh, with plastic surgery. So you, you get the idea. And, and, you know, you think even with our 
with our children now. Our kids feel that somehow they're deprived if they don't have a car by age 16. And they also have to have a cell phone and a beeper and, you know, on and on. That, that's, that's our culture. But the Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 6, verse 6, he says, But godliness is actually a means of great gain with a comp- when accompanied by contentment. So I believe the other thing the Lord would teach us here is that we need to be content with the basics that he will provide and do so on a basis, on a daily basis, rather than being distracted with so many other things. I want to close this morning with a fascinating story of the sin of discontentment that we read in the Old Testament We'll not take time to go there and go through all of it in great detail. But we read of the children of Israel complaining against God's provision for them. And I want you to see this in light of this of this precious truth that the Lord gives us. Give us this day our daily bread. I want you to see the contrast of this. In Exodus and Numbers, we read of the children of Israel And how they had been redeemed from the hideous slavery of Egyptian bondage, which again has so many pictures of our redemption from sin and our deliverance from the shackles and the bondage of sin. And these people had witnessed incredible miracles of divine deliverance. You remember the stories. And we find them coming into the wilderness, heading towards this promised land with God leading them and continuing to do all these incredible things. And God even provided some food for them. He provided manna. And in Hebrew, manhu means what is it? And that's how it got its name. They saw God's provision and they thought, what is it? And that became its name, manna. And of course, what it was, was a perfectly nutritious bread-like substance that became the staple of their, of their diet. And they would have other things that they could eat as well, but, but they certainly had this, this grain of heaven, as it's called by the psalmist. The angel's food, as it's also called. Again, a picture of God's future provision for our spiritual need. Remember, by the way, Christ referred to himself as the living bread which came down from heaven. And he added that if anyone ate of this bread, he would live forever in John 6 and so on. And he is even described, by the way, as the hidden manna that will be given to the overcomers in Revelation 2. Indeed, all we need is in Christ. But back to the story. Manna would rain down from heaven during the night. And then it would melt during the heat of the day. It wouldn't last. It was only a daily provision. And each day the people were to gather only enough for that day. And thereby trust the Lord for the next day's provision. And if you took more than you needed, if you kind of wanted to hoard it, then God would cause it to rot. and The worms would eat it. And if you didn't take enough, you would go hungry. And here again, I believe the Lord is reminding, of, reminding us through this story, you know, give us this day our daily bread. Not a request pleading for divine generosity necessarily, but one that demonstrates that we are content with what he provides each day. Well, as the story goes on, you may recall that they became rebellious very quickly 
after they came out of Egypt, they started complaining. They started murmuring and whining and grumbling and finally wailing and crying out. They longed for the rich, spicy foods and meat of Egypt. It was so difficult for Moses. Remember, he, he, he wanted to die. It's like, Lord, I can't just take me out. And the Lord came along and helped him get 70 other men to help him and so on. But because of their ingratitude and because of their distrust for his faithful provision in Numbers 11, verse 10, we read the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. Now, folks, that is something you don't want to ever do is kindle the anger of the Lord greatly. And God tells Moses, all right, they want meat. I'll give them meat. And here's what Moses tells them out of Numbers 11. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Friends, what a picture of people that remain in love with the world rather than denying themselves and in faith and in gratitude following Christ. Verse 31 goes on to say, now there went forth a wind from the Lord and it brought quail from the sea. And he let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side. All around the camp on about two cubits deep on the surface of the ground. So in other words, evidently the, these quail were coming. They were flying about three feet off the ground, being easily caught. Billions, a day's journey's worth of them in every direction. Billions of quail. Verse 32, the people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered ten homers. Friends, that's 60 to 70 bushels of quail. And it says they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. Isn't that an amazing picture of ingratitude and discontentment and how it, it breeds human greed and hoarding? Verse 33, while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was even chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. So the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, which, by the way, means the graves of lust. It was called Kibroth Hatava because there they buried the people who had been greedy. Oh, child of God, hear well from the Master. Give us this day our daily bread. Thereby, you humbly acknowledge your Heavenly Father as the sole and perfect provider of all that you need. And you do so with confident joy and with sweet contentment. And I close with this thought. What sin is our ingratitude when for more we cry, when discontented attitudes fuel lust within our eye. 
Though all we need, he gives each day manna rich and free. Yet greed doth oh so often say, God, for meat I plea. Oh, Lord, forgive our thanklessness. The grumbling of our lips, a selfish heart we now confess and simply ask for this. Daily give us more of thee. You are all we need. May our longings only be, O Lord, your face to see. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these very, very practical truths that you give us out of this model for prayer. Lord, may they reign supreme within our hearts when we approach you. And Lord, again, we thank you that you have committed yourself to providing for us and doing so lavishly and perfectly and just in time. Lord, strengthen our faith that we might trust in you and rejoice in how little or how much you give us, knowing that you know perfectly the objects and the amount. And Lord, finally, I would pray for anyone here today that knows you not as Savior. Oh, Lord, bring conviction to their heart. May they not leave this place before they bow the knee to Christ and place their faith in your infinite love and accept that gift of grace. Do it for your sake, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.